afternoon evening good whatever time it is that you're listening to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear i'd like to welcome you to monster kid radio my name is derek m cook and i'm your writer host producer of this show and i'm excited to have you here because this is week three of flashback february where we're taking looks at movies that we've already covered here on the show in the past but then have a different guest than the first time we covered the film in the mix as well with a different point of view, a different viewpoint. And this time around, we have Frank Dietz, an actor, an artist, a screenwriter, and one heck of a monster kid joining us to talk about a movie from the 60s starring my man, the Kush, Peter Cushing in Island of Terror. You know, I had a blast talking with Frank about this film. It's an underrated film as far as I'm concerned. It's something that more people need to see and on the off chance you haven't seen it or don't know the story of Island of Terror, Frank and I are going to go through the film, break down the plot, and talk about the story quite a bit in our conversation. So I'll warn you again, but just as a heads up right now, huge spoilers are coming. In addition to hearing about Island of Terror from me and Frank, you're going to hear about Island of Terror from Famous Monsters of Filmland with Kenny's Look at Famous Monsters of Filmland segment. Normally, I play Kenny's segment before we get to the main conversation. This time around, though, I'm going to do the main conversation first, and then we're going to play Kenny's Look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And the reason for that is, well, I just feel like it flows better this time around. Plus, Famous Monsters also kind of spoiled the movie, and yeah, anyway. We have some feedback from last week's episode. Hi, Derek. It's Chris Franklin from Firewater Podcast Network, JLU Cast, Supermates, those type of shows. How's Frankenstein? Loved your episode on Monster Squad with your sister-in-law, Lori. That was fantastic. I love that film. That, and oddly enough, Adam Costello meet Frankenstein, which you and Scott did the week before. Halloween can happen at the house of Frankenstein without those two movies. The family has to watch both of those movies. Or Halloween ain't happening. I'm pretty sure it's the year without Halloween if you don't watch those. Just a few quick notes that uh, popped in my head. I think Michael Cimbello that uh, did uh, Rock Until You Drop, I think he also did the uh, Monster Squad rap, which, no offense, I love the Monster Squad. I feel the rap's horrible, but, uh, you know, to each their own. You know, the Dragnet rap from around the same time, at least it's got Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. That's all I can say about that. Uh, but <laughs> they're both pretty cringeworthy, in my opinion, but that's, that's cool. I mean, I still love the absolute rest of the movie. Love it. Love it to death. Love Duncan Rager. He's probably like, after Lee and Lugosi, he's probably like my third favorite screen Dracula, because he's kind of a great combination of both with his own spin on it as well. Uh, but uh, Michael Cimbello, going back to him, I forgot to mention, you probably already know this, but in case anybody doesn't, He's the guy that did the song Maniac in uh, Flashdance. You know, she's a maniac, maniac on the floor. That was actually written for a slasher film, uh, as legend has it, and was not used for a slasher film, and he rewrote some of the lyrics to match Flashdance, but that's where the title Maniac comes from. So, interesting, uh, I think. So, yeah, great show. Lori was great. I uh, hope she comes back. 
And, uh, yeah, keep doing the flashbacks. It's great. I mean, you, there's so much to say about these movies, and other guests have more to say about them. You know, Monster Kid Radio is always awesome, but it's fun to revisit these classics. So keep up the great work. See ya. Chris, bye. Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network and one half of the team behind the yearly Halloween podcast series, The House of Franklinstein. I love that. I look forward to that every year. Chris, thanks for calling in. Now, I did share your voicemail with Lori ahead of time because, well, this was her first podcast experience. And I wanted to make sure she knew that she was appreciated, not just by me, but by the listeners of MKR. She really appreciated that as well. So thank you for sending that in. The Monster Squad right up there. One of the best modern day, I guess more modern day since it was back in the 80s. And now oh, I'm old. <laughs> but it's one of the best more modern day monster movies. Absolutely adore that film. And it is perfect Halloween fair. And you are absolutely right about that movie's Dracula right up there at the top as far as I'm concerned just one of the best one of the best as far as the Monster Squad rap goes you know I've read a couple of places where Michael Cimbello has been credited as being the man behind that rap but then many other sources say no that nobody wants to take responsibility for that I don't know I I agree with you you know I kind of dig some 80s rap that's fine but it's not like the Monster Squad rap is a really good example of what could be done on the microphone you know what I'm saying so yeah I, I don't know who knows? I think I knew that about the song Maniac and Flashdance, I think. But in case I didn't, thanks for reminding me or letting me know. Chris, thanks for calling in. I really, really appreciate it. And I'll make sure there's a link to the Fire and Water Podcast Network in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. We also have an email that came in. I'd like to read that for you now. Dear MKR, I just discovered your podcast and we'll spend the next few weeks catching up on past episodes. I was hooked listening to the very first one, a very nice blend of intelligent discussion and just sitting around with fellow monster kids and jawboning about what we love. I'm a monster kid born in 1954, so remember all the same stuff you discuss. What a great time to be a kid. Would a discussion of old dark house pictures fit in with your format? That might be something to consider. I'll be listening. Already subscribed. Sincerely, Jeff W. from Salem, Wisconsin. Jeff, thank you for writing in. Welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy what you hear. Some of the earlier episodes, you know, I kind of cringe, but I think every podcast producer says that about their earlier episodes. I love the guests, though. I love having a rotating stable of people and voices on the show and talking about these movies. It's just fun to chat about these films. It's just something magical about them. As far as old Dark House movies go, Yes, they would fit into the mix. In fact, I'm in conversations right now with author Nicole Cushing, no relation to the great Peter, unfortunately, at least I don't think so, about talking about the film The Old Dark House, one of the standards when it comes to Old Dark House films, the 1932 film directed by James Whale. That should be happening here in the near future, so stay tuned for that. Listeners, if you want to be cool like Chris or Jeff, feel free to get a hold of me and I'll include your feedback in the show. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com and our phone number is 503-479-5MKR. That's 503-479-5657. The music that you've been hearing this whole time, it's the song Psycho Surf. It's from the band Los Cosmos from their self-titled album that came out a couple of years back. You can find them at loscosmos.bandcamp.com. Cosmos is spelled with a K, by the way. They are a Russian surf band. I don't know if the two are related or not, but check them out when you're done listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. When you're done listening to Frank and I talk about 
Island of Terror, which is going to be happening right after this. versus Godzilla. Nothing you've ever seen can equal the thrills of this extraordinary motion picture. Nothing you've ever felt can equal its awesome fury as the mightiest monsters of the ages clash in the battle of the century. It sears the emotions with shock and terror. It staggers the imagination. All new in color. King Kong versus Godzilla. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. just as you see here. Do you know what you have just done? You have transferred us in time and space, and I hadn't even set the controls. Now I don't know where we are. We could be anywhere in the universe, and at any time. Yes, this is how it began. The adventure that started by accident, taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Who's there? Who's there? Come with us into that strange new world. I cannot guarantee your safety, but I can promise you unimagined thrills. These are the people trapped by the Daleks. Doctor Who, the brilliant science professor. The young man who triggered off this strange journey. The professor's frightened granddaughter. And the youngster who inherited her grandfather's adventurous spirit. Doctor Who and the Daleks. You can see them in color on the big screen, closer than ever before. So close, you can feel their fire. So thrilling, you must be there. We are coming back to see you. We expect you to be here to meet us. We need to talk about the Rondo Hat and Classic Horror Awards. The ballot has been announced, and once again, you guys and gals have helped to put Monster Kid Radio under consideration for the best multimedia category. And I got to tell you guys and gals, I, I love this. Thank you so much for making Monster Kid Radio part of the Rondos once again. I think every year that Monster Kid Radio has been in production, we've been on the ballot as a nominee. And we did win that one time. And, you know, I, I would love I would love to get a second win. So if you haven't already voted, please consider voting for Monster Kid Radio for Best Multimedia. Now, I know that voting can sometimes feel a little clunky. It's an old school way of doing things. You just email David Colton, the guy who runs the Rondos, your ballot. That's it. 
You don't have to vote in every category. In fact, if you haven't seen the nominees in a particular category, I would recommend making a point to checking out those nominees before voting. Please don't vote blindly. I mean, vote honestly. You know what I mean? And I'd like to give a special shout out to Josh Kennedy. Josh Kennedy's House of the Gorgon is up for Best Independent Film. Josh and I are part of the Monster Conservancy, and I would love to see the Monster Conservancy get represented on the winner's list this year at the Rondos. Head over to RondoAward.com to learn more about the Rondos, to learn more specifics about how to vote. But I'll just tell you, all you got to do is email David at Taraco at AOL.com. And that's spelled T as in Tom, A-R-A-C as in cat, O at AOL.com. I'll make sure it's listed in the show notes as well. If you've already voted for Monster Kid Radio for Best Multimedia, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And maybe... Maybe my single Rondo Hatton award will get a tag team partner this year with another win. We'll see. Congratulations to all the nominees and best of luck. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I've got Frank Dietz on the show, and this is important because he's the reason why we're doing Flashback February. Frank came to me and had his list of movies he wanted to do, but they've already been talked about here on the show. So I thought, you know what? Let's just go revisit some old favorites. Frank, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Well, thank you very much, Derek. I'm always, always happy to be here. I love your program. I love talking about movies that I love. I think that sometimes revisiting uh, a movie that maybe you've already covered is good if you have a different guest discussing it, because sometimes you'll get a, you know, a different point of view about the movie or, you know, some info or some little fact or something that you didn't know about before. Or maybe something you didn't really appreciate the first time around. So uh, I love the idea of the revisit. Exactly. It's a different point of view. The last time we talked about Island of Terror was back in 2013 with sculptor Tom Bigler. So it's been quite a while. It's been quite a while, so I was eager to get back to this one. Island of Terror is a just a clever film. I love this movie so much. But I want to talk a little bit more about what you're up to, man. I, I've been following you on Facebook. The script's gone wild. How's that going? Uh, script's gone wild is going gangbusters. It's so much fun. Uh, if your listeners don't know about it, it's a, a bi-monthly event, a charity event that we do down here in Los Angeles and occasionally in other cities where we gather together a bunch of Filmmakers, actors, comedians, writers, and we read a script of a famous movie or an infamous movie. The gag of it is that we are all drinking booze while we're doing it. So it becomes a fun drinking game for the audience to watch. And, you know, basically every time that you either stumble on a line, you fumble, the flub the line, you miss your cue, you have to take a, a drink. And uh, by, the, you know, 
by halfway through, it gets really interesting and stupid. But the audiences love it. And it's always for charity. We do a different charity almost every uh, time we do it. So we've we've done Shriners Hospitals for Children and St. Jude's Hospitals for Children and Habitats for Humanity. And the one we're about to do this month, we're going to do the 1966 Batman movie, the Adam West film. We're doing that one for... Border Angels, the legal defense team that helps the families that are separated down at the border. And the, we've got an amazing cast. Tom Kenny, who's SpongeBob SquarePants, is in it, is the Riddler. Dana Gould, the comedian, is the Penguin. Uh, I mean, it's oh, just. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, Malcolm Barrett from Preacher is the Joker. Uh, Ralph Garman from K Rock, uh, formerly of K Rock, is is our Batman, and uh, and Ralph, like me, was a, was an actual good friend of Adam West. So this is a you know a, a very special for him. So we're gonna have a blast. We're we're getting more and more interest in it as we go, and I think we're gonna do a league of their own in uh, in April. Oh wow! And, yeah, I, there's just so many good movies that lend itself to this kind of uh, situation, and and. Yeah, I mean, it's the drinking part of it sounds worse than it is. You know, I don't think anybody gets, you know, really smashed. <laughs> uh, but we all do make sure that we, uh, you know, use lifts uh, to and from the uh, the venue. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to hear. Well, I'll make sure yeah. there's a link in the show notes to scriptsgonewild.com so people can look it up if they're in the L.A. area. Batman 66, February 27th at 730. The L Cid on yeah. Sunset. If you're there, listeners, I want to hear about how it went because I'm not going to be able to make it. I want to hear all about it. Aside from that, it's mostly writing. I'm uh, I'm actually, a, this hasn't been announced yet, but I think I can say it on here. I'm, I'm actually a writer on season two of Creepshow. The, really? Uh, in the wow. anthology series. Yes. Well, congrats, man. That's great. I've been seeing the pictures you've been posting with uh, like the KNB team and all that. I'm like, that's, mm-hmm. that's cool. Is that kind of yeah. part of that? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I, I, uh, I went over to K and B uh, uh, to uh, check out the various creatures that they are creating there for my episode, which I'm really happy with. And uh, Greg Nicotero is going to be directing it, so really looking forward to it. I'll probably be going down to Atlanta in a couple of weeks from now to uh, be on set, shadow Greg, and you know watch them film it and everything like that. But this is my first foray into television. I usually write feature movies so uh, mm-hmm. uh it's a new open door for me that's incredible and creep show is on shutter is that right yes yep mm-hmm. okay. keep us posted about when that is going to air because we'll talk about it here on the show for sure season one uh premiered in september last year so i imagine that's probably about the same time that the uh season two okay. will premiere. So. man that's so cool i'm so glad when monster kids do good you know <laughs> when th- there's just something about us as monster kids, we have in our DNA the the need to create more monster or monster friendly material. I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is, but I love it. Yeah, if it's in your blood, it's hard to escape. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, for th- those of us, you know, who grew up with it, um, you know, especially the famous monsters uh, mm-hmm. of Filmland, the children of famous monsters, the children of Flory Ackerman, we all share that experience and. Actually, uh, the movie we're going to be talking about is a movie that, a lot like Trog, I saw in that very special time period in my life where things really, uh, either either they really affect you or they don't at all, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> this particular movie really affected me. Tell you about that if we're ready to begin. We will be ready to begin in a second because the last time I had you on the show, Frank, there was something that I forgot to do. Oh, okay. So- 
On Monster Kid Radio, we have a game that we play called The Classic Five. I've got a deck of cards here, and each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to keep Monster Kids talking. How about playing a round of The Classic Five with me, Frank? Okay. The Classic Five! All right, here we go. I'm going to draw some random cards here. First card right off the top of my deck here. Which movie do you prefer? I was a teenage werewolf or I was a teenage Frankenstein? I like both of them, but I think if I had to choose, I would go with I was a teenage werewolf. I was a teenage werewolf. The most terrifying picture of our time. I was a teenage werewolf. Fantastic. Bewildering. A motion picture to stand beside the greatest horror stories of all time. I was a teenage werewolf. I think that that movie has a, a way more interesting subtext to it. It's definitely a reflection on teenagers going through puberty, going through their bodies changing and their their look at uh, how they look at themselves and so forth. And I think that that whether it was intentional or not, I think that movie really works <laughs> in, that, okay. in sort of spelling that out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I can see that totally. I, I love them both, too. So. All right. Card number two. What classic monster movie prop would you like to own? Oh, boy. Well, my dear friends, Bob and Kathy Burns and their their gigantic collection of amazing movie props. If you don't know who they are, please go watch my movie, Beast Wishes. <laughs> you find out all Monster Kid it. Radio approves that message. Yes. <laughs> And there is one piece of in their museum that I have always held so fondly to my heart, and that is they own Glenn Strankenstein monster boots from Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which is the movie that set me on my monster kid path when I was six years old. It's still one of my all-time favorite movies. I even got to put them on once, which was oh, really, wow. really exciting yeah except the only problem was it was it was at a convention in the summertime that they had brought them to monster bash so they let me put them on and i got my picture taken wearing them but the only thing was it was summertime in pittsburgh area and so i'm wearing shorts and a a hawaiian shirt which doesn't really complete the picture with the frankenstein boots (laughs) (laughs) right on all right, card number three. Oh, I didn't plan this. Uh, the third question: Who's your favorite actor to play Frankenstein's monster? Oh, oh, without without question, it's Karloff. Um, yeah. I, I I love Glenn Strange, especially in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and I like almost all of them. I'm not the biggest fan of Lugosi in in Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, but I still have a just an amazing love for that movie. Also, uh, but you know, Karloff did something that was so amazing. And, you know, to this day, obviously, it's like you say Frankenstein and what do people picture? They're basically picturing Boris Karloff's Frankenstein or Jack Pierce's Frankenstein, maybe is what I should say. But um, Karloff had this amazing ability of creating a character who was believably a homicidal dead person. Like he's a walking cadaver. I'm talking about in the original film in particular. Sure. It's really terrifying. And then for him to also infuse this humanity at the same time, that is a brilliant performance. And I I don't know that any other Frankenstein character has ever been able to come close to that. It's remarkable. And with good reason, it's the iconic character that, that we still look to when we think of Frankenstein's monster. Sure. 
All right, let's see. That was the third question. Card number four. What is your favorite Universal monster movie sequel? I would say it's a little tough. And it's probably surprising, but I, even though as much as I love Bride of Frankenstein and I love Son of Frankenstein, I love Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. But he doesn't understand. There's a curse upon me. I change into a wolf. Listen to me, Frank. I saw my father become obsessed by his power. He died a horrible death. There's no need for us all to storm after her. She'll come in if I ask her. Why should we treat her so fancy? She's a Frankenstein. It's a really tight movie that utilizes both of the monster characters really well. Um, the story makes way more sense than the ones that followed that. It's it's visually it's super cool. Like the director, I think it was Roy William Neal. Mm-hmm. He he keeps that. If you watch the movie again, watch watch the camera work. That camera is con- almost constantly in motion, and I think that's what helps keep it moving along. And Lon Chaney Jr. is super uh, good in that film, and also. Of all of the Wolfman makeups in the five movies, I, and they are all slightly different, much more different in, in the last one. The, the first four, you know, it's Jack Pierce all four times, but there's something about the makeup in, in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman that really I, I like the best. And believe me, I've drawn and painted that character from every one of those movies dozens and dozens of times. So I do know the difference between them. And there's something, just something so sort of, I don't know, rough and feral about him in that particular movie. It's so good. It really is. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll wrap this up with our fifth and final card. Frank, if you could have been on set during the production of any particular Hammer film, which one would it have been? Ooh, wow. Good question. It would probably be, I'm going to say... Either, either either Dracula has risen from the grave or Frankenstein must be destroyed. Uh, two movies that I saw as a double bill, uh, you know, in 1969 when I was 10 years old. Both have Veronica in them, uh, and mm-hmm. I, I adore her. One has Christopher Lee, one has Peter Cushing. I guess, I suppose I would probably go with Frankenstein must be destroyed just because I've met Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee both at different times, and... I just I was so uh, enamored with Peter Cushing, his manner, his his grace, uh, his charm. Uh, so I would just love to be on set with him. I think <laughs> I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. For God's sake, go away! Please. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson. Frankenstein must be destroyed. This picture has been rated M, suggested for mature audiences. Yeah. Well, uh, that, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I, I could do this all day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> picking out cards. 
every time we have somebody on, I try to do it. And I just, I, I spaced it last time. So I wanted to make sure we got it in this right. time around. So that was a round of the classic five. Frank, how do you feel? I feel great. Warmed up, ready to go? I am ready. All right, let's talk a little bit about this film that, man, it is so good. May I have your attention, please? I'm Dr. West, but this is Dr. Stanley. Now, we've completed going over Dr. Phillips's notes, and I must warn you that we're faced with a very dangerous situation, Dr. Stanley. A remote island destined for total destruction. If you think there's something running loose on this island, you can't leave me alone. Tony, this could Please. be very... Don't leave me alone. I'm not very keen on going down in that cellar again. Out of an experiment on life came a devastating death. You look safe. Science creates. Can science destroy? Now, this is very difficult to explain, but there are some creatures loose on this island and they're dangerous. What do you mean, creatures? I wish I could tell you more, but we just don't know exactly what they are. Come on, let's get out of here. Listen to me! They're inactive now because they've defied it, but we don't know for how long we can't stay here, so come on! Oh, David, I'm so proud! So am I! Fiction or fact, this could really happen. Are you all right? No! There's one out here. He's in the car, quick! Can this horror be destroyed? David, hmm? do you really think we can get out of this? Well, I think we... We stand a good chance, a very good chance, yes. But you don't really believe that, do you? Not 100%, no, but I'd like to believe it. Can these terrified people be saved from certain death? Fire, bullets, bombs could not penetrate its impregnable shell, but something did. What? See Island of Terror at this theater soon. Island of Terror from 66, is that right? Uh, yes, I don't think it was released in the U.S. until 67. Okay. Okay, 1967, I was eight years old. Okay. I was living on Long Island, uh, which is a, a peninsula off of New York, New York City, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is back when there were no multiplexes yet. There were two movie theaters in our town. There was the one that was on Main Street that was sort of the bigger, nicer one. And then there's the one that was down by the harbor, uh, which was the... A little more dingy, you know. Um, but these were both these were both old theaters that had stages and curtains and everything like that, right? And um, almost every weekend, there was. I'm sure a lot of your listeners had this uh, same uh, experience in their hometowns. But almost every weekend, there were matinee, usually you know horror movies or science fiction movies, mm-hmm. uh, or or they were Jerry Lewis movies. You know what I mean? There was like it was it was something <laughs> that was usually kid friendly. Okay. Uh, so that's how I saw, you know, the Valley of Guanji. That's how I saw a lot of the Hammer movies, There's a lot of Godzilla movies. And I remember that it was a rainy 
Saturday afternoon and my friend and I don't I don't even remember which friend it was, but, you know, it will get cost something like 75 cents to get into the movie for a double feature and just went down to the dingier of the two theaters, which was called the Sands Point Theater. And the matinee that day, the double feature were these two movies that I didn't know anything about. OK, one was The Projected Man and the other was The Terror. Now, like I said, I had not heard anything about these films. I think that was probably before I really started collecting Famous Monsters of Filmland. And so I hadn't read anything about these movies. I did see that Peter Cushing was in the, one of them. And I recognized his name, but I still was i was young enough that I didn't really know who, who he was. Right. Okay. So I, we were like, OK, let's go in and see them. So the first movie that they showed is The Projected Man. Now, The Projected Man is a sci fi hybrid horror movie like Island of Terror. And by the way, both of them were produced by Richard Gordon, mm-hmm. who also produced Fiend Without a Face, which is an earlier but, but similar in many ways uh, horror sci fi hybrid and also a really good movie. So we watched The Projected Man and it's just sort of this Frankenstein kind of movie it's not particularly scary uh you know there's a pretty girl in her underwear at the end near the end that the monster carries off and you know that was worth watching for a little bit but uh you know <laughs> uh, you know for us red-blooded american eight-year-old boys and you know we were really kind of unimpressed but you know it was a way to kill an hour and a half right so sure so i did not have any high expectation for the second film I had no idea what I was in for. I was blown away and terrified by this movie. It shook me up. It is one of the movies in my entire lifetime where I went home that night and I curled up in my bed and tucked my covers underneath me so that the monsters could not grab onto my arm or anything like that. You know? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. It really had an impact. And I didn't see it again for uh, many years. And when it did show up on television, and we talked about this last time with Tra, when it showed up on television, it was heavily edited. Um, yeah. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that really freaked me out was gone. And it actually was kind of hard to find for a while after that, too. Even when VHS started and DVD wasn't out on DVD for ever, I don't think. It it was out on VHS for a short time through Universal, which is kind of interesting that Universal had it. But I don't think there was ever a DVD of it. I think it went from VHS to Blu-ray. Um, thank God it's now out on a really nice, clean Blu-ray. I think uh, Shout Factory has it. But anyway, I came out of that movie theater like just so unbelievably freaked out. And I think that at that point I was watching horror movies on television, but they were mostly, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, Mummy. These are movies that are all took place in some foreign land that didn't look like where I lived. You know what I mean? Right. Right. It's all, it's all Transylvania and Viseria and these, you know, these European towns where they didn't have cars, you know, yet they had <laughs> they had horse-drawn wagons and such. And so this movie, I think, freaked me out way more is because even though it takes place on a an isolated island off the coast of, of Ireland, it still looked contemporary. 
there were cars, there was there was electricity, or actually only for a short while in this movie. But yeah. uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like the people wore contemporary clothing, at least close enough, um, mm-hmm. because uh, they are on a little tiny Irish uh, island. But I think that that's why movies like this and like the 1958 Blob with Steve McQueen also uh, affected me because it it was set in a town that looked like that that town looked like mine. Okay. So I think it, it just hit closer to home in that regard than a town where everybody's wearing lederhosen and and, you know, <laughs> and doing <laughs> and doing dances in the street and feathers in their caps and everything. So uh, so I think that's part of the reason it just it really hit me and I, it has remained uh, uh, way up on my list of all time favorites pretty much ever since even with there was a, a good probably maybe even a decade and a half or more where i hadn't seen it i think we talked about last time also that sometimes when you revisit a movie that you you really liked when you were young you do so at your own peril right right exactly it may not be the sweeping epic or the really scary movie that you remembered <laughs> um mm-hmm. and uh thankfully um island of terror uh lives up to that memory when did you first see it i had heard about it i had not I had not seen it at all but i had heard about it coming out on blu-ray in the uk and this was one of those times that i was in incredibly grateful for my wife getting me a multi-region blu-ray player a couple of Christmases back so i ordered it from the uk and got it and watched it and just fell in love with it now i don't have the shout factory you know domestic release uh, so i can't really compare the two but yeah i don't either actually i have what you have i have the uk release yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and i know for also for a while there's a very infamous scene that we'll talk about later on in the movie Mm -hmm. that was that was edited out of certain prints of the film for for probably a silly reason, but <laughs> but uh, it it is a it is a shocking moment in the film, and we'll 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 get to that. So it wasn't that long ago that you really saw it for the first time. Yeah, I mean, when it first came out on Blu-ray is when I picked it up, and I've watched You're, it a couple of times since. I love it. You're lucky you didn't see it when, at the age that I saw it at. <laughs> you would have been traumatized <laughs> like I was. Oh my gosh! Yeah, but, when it. And even that, I mean, that said, it still kind of got to me a little bit because there's mm-hmm. just something about the way the silicates uh, multiply and mm-hmm. the scene that you're talking about earlier that had to be kind of trimmed a little bit. The events that led up to that took me completely by surprise. I had like no preconceptions whatsoever what was going to happen in this film. I just knew Cushing was in it. Terrence Fisher directed it. I love those two together. This is going to be fun. And I was just wrapped up in the whole thing. It's spectacular. I, You mm-hmm. know, and one of the things I, because I was actually just watching it again this morning in preparation for, for us talking about it. But one of the things that really impresses me is from the very beginning of the movie. And it's typical, you know, Terrence Fisher, who was just mm-hmm. a, a fantastic director and really knew how to handle this kind of material. What's so impressive to me is the opening sequence of the movie. It's a pre-title sequence. It just the movie just opens and there you are at a, on on this little tiny Irish sweater wearing island and uh, <laughs> everybody's wearing Irish sweaters. That's how we know it's 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 off the coast of Ireland. But um it's this brilliant little bit of exposition. It's only a couple of minutes long, but they set up everything you need to know about the movie 
for the movie to move forward in this one little two and a half minute sequence. Mm-hmm. I, you've got your three or four guys from the island who are going to be basically half of our six main characters in the movie. Sure. And and they're all talking about what's going on. And they establish that the island is is very isolated, number one. They mention that they still don't have telephone service. Uh, that they've been waiting for it. One of the guys says, oh, yeah, I promised we'd get it this year. You know, <laughs> so and they say that this scientist that lives on this island is getting this delivery of this this stuff. And they're watching this and they say, oh, they, they mentioned that there's not going to be another delivery for several weeks. And this doctor is a research scientist named Dr. Phillips. And he's working on some super secret research in his laboratory, which is in a very gothic looking mansion on the island. The other characters are the mayor, who is played by Niall McGuinness, anyone who's who enjoys the wonderful Night of the Demon and or Curse of the Demon, depending on which version you saw. Um, he is the villain in that film, and he's wonderful. And then there's a, the town doctor who they establish is new to the island, and uh, he's Dr. Landers. And then there's the constable who's played by Sam Kidd, who worked in Britain a lot back in the day. And those are your three guys. And they make it very clear that, that this is a very small island. right? And just I, when I watch that scene, I'm I'm paying very close attention to the how well written that dialogue is. And I don't remember. Actually, I don't recall right off the bat who, who the uh, uh, the screenwriters were. But I think that they did a great job of just compacting all this all this information scene and not making it feel like it's expositional. That's a screenwriter skill. As a creative, as a writer, you know, we recognize these things and we recognize them as being, like you said, it's a skill. It's a real skill. Uh, The screenwriters were Edward Mann and Al Ramson. I don't know anything about these two. But even during that little opening bit, they talk about the telephones, the power not working half the time. There's only one way in or out uh, by boat. They only have the one transportation method to go somewhere. You either boat in or you fly in. There's, there's only two choices. Yeah, and they set that up, and you know something bad. I mean, <laughs> they're going to get isolated. They are on their own. They've got to yeah. deal with whatever's about to happen on their own. And it's a really good way to do it and set it all up before yeah. the movie even Yeah, begins. this is all still pre-credit sequence. It cuts to the laboratory where Dr. Phillips and his team, they're in this, this laboratory that has all kinds of tanks and beakers and, and strange-looking tubes and wires and all this kind of stuff. And they have this very uh, short discussion. One of the other lab assistants in there uh, says to Dr. Phillips, we're ready to go. We should, we're going to move on with the experiment. And the one guy says, well, shouldn't we, and this is really important, by the way, well, shouldn't we let uh, Rome, New York, and Tokyo know that we're proceeding? And the guy says, oh, yeah, I've already, I've already sent them a message, and uh, I don't think they're going to mind. <laughs> we're going to go ahead with the experiment. And then comes the big line. It was basically like, if we're successful today, we may have actually found a cure for cancer. And then there's this loud crash. And there's this very quick, it's almost subliminal flash. It's only maybe two frames. But all of the scientists are now dead on the floor. And that's when the title sequence kicks in. And it kicks in with this just fantastic theme music. Oh, I love the score. I wish it was available somewhere. I would pick it up in a minute. It's so cool. And it was by a composer named Malcolm Lockyer. It's a really cool theme because it's really dynamic. And Mm -hmm. the way he utilizes 
percussion in particular, it's not a xylophone, but it's something like that, where it sort of evokes the image of bones clanking together because yeah. its bones are going to play a very big part in this movie. Yeah. I thought it was very specific that he, want, that he wanted to use that kind of sound to create that sort of imagery. You know, to hear some more of his music, he also scored the uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks film with oh. Peter Cushing, and that has been released on disc, so that's out there somewhere. I really like this guy's work. I wish, like I said, this score was available somewhere. I know it's never going to be released, so I'll just have to listen to the credits over and over and over again. I would imagine you probably would be hard-pressed to even find the sheet music for it. Oh, I'm sure. It definitely, a lot of people look at this movie and they think it's a Hammer movie. You know, it feels like it. It could be. And I, I totally understand people making that mistake. Well, it's got Cushing. It's got Fisher direction. You know, it feels like it could be one of the more action-y Hammer films, you know, a Quatermass style. It, it definitely leans more towards sci-fi than mm. Hammer usually did. The reason I love it as a hybrid is it's a science fiction story, but it's set in this sort of gothic area like so dr phillips mansion in fact i think peter cushing makes a joke about it at some point as they're pulling up to it he said it looks like weathering heights i you know, i'm absolutely certain that this big mansion slash castle whatever it is has been used as an exterior in other horror movies oh, i'd be surprised if it wasn't it looks very familiar you know so anyway, now we know something's gone wrong in this laboratory. And when we come out of, of the opening credits with that wonderful theme song, it goes right to this. One of the four guys, the character's name is Ian Bellows. No relation to Dr. Bellows on I Dream of Genie, I'm sure. Um, he's, <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's one of the four that we're talking in, the, in the, that great opening sequence. And now it's nighttime and he's walking down by the shoreline and there's a little cave and he hears this weird noise and he doesn't he just doesn't know what it is. So he takes his lantern and he goes into this cave and you hear this sound. You can't see him. He just goes into the darkness and you hear this sound and it's this crunching, slurping kind of noise. And then you hear his horrifying screams. I mean, the screams of someone who is in living hell, in, in such horrible, horrible pain. The sound effects in this film are superlative. Oh, man. They are amazing. And they set up that the creatures who we're going to be introduced to shortly, these creatures make this one kind of noise that's just like this. I can't even do an imitation of it, but, <laughs> but it, because it's because I don't know what what they use to create that sound. But mm -hmm. that's the sort of note to the audience that one of the creatures is nearby. Right. So that's already kind of scary. But then if you're unlucky enough to encounter one of these things, then you get that crunching, slurping noise <laughs> that really is disgusting. <laughs> It's disturbing. It is really awful. And then you put on top of that the just really, really horrifying death screams of the person encountering this thing. And it is very effective. It is super effective. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've been doing sound effects for film lately and hearing a movie like this and learning how they're able to communicate so much with just sound. Mm -hmm. 
it's just, it's a masterclass in sound design. Like you said, the sound effects are great. I would love to get that first sound of when you're getting near one of them as a ringtone on my phone. I think that would be <laughs> <you know? laughs> Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> in fact, I might have to do that. So we can go to uh, our constable's home and uh, this guy's wife shows up and she's like, well, Ian's missing and I, or he hasn't come home yet. And he's worried. And so Constable Harris uh, takes his little bicycle. He rides a bicycle. It's really charming. It's uh, great. Uh, he rides his bicycle and he finds the cave and there's a body there in the cave. And he touches the body with his nightstick and it's the body's all like mushy. Right. It isn't <laughs> solid. That's really the best way to put it. Yeah. And yeah. So he's he's like, he doesn't know what the heck it is. And so he he goes now to the the new doctor there, Dr. Landers, and he says, hey, um, uh, I found a body and I think it's Ian Bellows. And the doctor is like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, it's his face is just a horrible mush with eyes sitting in it. <laughs> It looks like jelly. 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 Yes, jelly. <laughs> and he says, seems like there's no bones. He's like, no, no. Everybody in the movie, by the way, says no bones at one point or another, right? Yeah. Dr. Landers doesn't know what to make of it. He finds the body, he does a an autopsy. There are no bones in the entire body, which is clearly a, an unusual situation for a body to be in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's not normal. <laughs> yeah, but Dr. Landers is going to go to the coast because I guess there was still a way to get there by a small boat. And uh, mm-hmm. he's going to go see Dr. Brian Stanley. Now, Dr. Brian Stanley is a renowned pathologist at the uh, uh, university. And this is where we meet Peter Cushing as Dr. Stanley. And, oh, my God, the man c- can just do no wrong. I, you know, he's such a marvelous actor. He's one of those actors that you could hand him the most ridiculous lines of gobbledygook of false science and he would say them with such conviction that you automatically just go with it. You don't question it. At yeah. all. Now, luckily this script is really good. So the lines that he does have to say in this movie, they actually sound somewhat scientifically reasonable. And also this is maybe one of the only Peter Cushing movies where this is true. Peter Cushing is actually the comic relief in this movie. He has all of the lines, uh, almost all. Edward Judd has a few. But by and large, the lines that make you smile or giggle a little bit in the midst of all this horror are almost all delivered by Peter Cushing as, as Dr. Stanley. He's a delightful character. It's a, it's a nice change of face from, you know, the, the menacing Dr. Frankenstein or the driven Van Helsing. You're right. He has some of the, the lightest to the funniest lines. And I don't know if he was intentionally clueless when he was asking whether or not he can join in the game. The solitaire? Edward Judd. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is one of my favorite lines. It, I love it that. It's so funny. So, so Dr. Stanley says, no bones. And uh, he's, he's never heard of such a thing. He says, but uh, nearby is a colleague of his, Dr. David West, who is an expert on bones and bone science. So they they drop in on Dr. David West. And Dr. David West is played by the marvelous Edward Judd, who is in some of my favorite movies from the 1960s. Oh, yeah? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, he was in, he's the lead in First Men in the Moon, the Ray Harryhausen mm-hmm. film. He's the lead in The Day the Earth Caught Fire, which is a brilliant Oh, I love movie. that movie. And if you're uh, – listeners, if you have not seen The Day the Earth Caught Fire, seek it out. It is a classy, spectacular, mm-hmm. great script 
really just super well done film. It's on Blu-ray in the UK. So listeners, if you have the ability to, to watch a, a Region B Blu-ray, it's, it's highly recommended. It's stupendous. It's so good. Oh, Edward Judd, by the way, also, fun fact, when he was coming up, shared a flat with Sean Connery and Michael Caine. And then also at one point with Terrence, uh, um, oh my God, blanking on his name, um, Superman 2. Uh, oh, no, I'm, no, I'm going <laughs> to be. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, though. Turned stamp. So they were all like drinking buddies and shared uh, apartments, flats together in London when they were all sort of coming up at the same time. Yeah. Uh, if you ever get a chance to read Michael Caine's uh, biography, uh, The Elephant to Hollywood, he talks about that quite a lot, actually. You know, great stories about how he held Sean Connery's coat while Sean Connery beat up three guys in a pub. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, wow. Good stuff. It's really good <laughs> stuff. Anyway, I love him. I, I, I think he's terrific. He's, uh, again, uh, he's an actor who can take the lines that, he, that he's going to be saying and say them it, it, with such conviction that you, you just accept what he's saying. So they go to see him and they, it's funny, they get to his door and they ring his doorbell and, and Dr. Stanley yeah. says something, uh, Edward Judd, uh, opens the door and he's there with this gorgeous girl who's uh basically uh dressed in his in his robe um <laughs> because they've spilled some wine or something like that so and the girl whose character's name is uh tony merrill is played by carol gray who is stunning uh, this woman has a, a, one of the most beautiful faces she's got these just gorgeous eyes that leap, just leap out. I mean, um, very similar, in fact, to Valerie Leon. They have a very similar look. So they go in and they tell him that they found this body and it has no bones. And he says, no bones, like everyone else does. So they, they've decided that they're going to take a trip out to the island to, to look at the body and investigate. And Tony, she says she's going to come along because uh, they're going to use her father's helicopter to get there. They get to the island and they make it very, very clear that... They are stranded there for three days. No boat, no helicopter, no small plane, no telephone. They're stranded. They're marooned. She actually uses the word marooned. Right. I was a little surprised because at the beginning, they make it so clear when he takes the boat to go to the mainland. Make sure you bring it back. That's our only way in and out. Oh, okay. We'll just leave it behind and take the helicopter in instead. You know, it just seemed a little like... Dude, you are setting yourself up for failure, man. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it had to do with the amount of people that were coming. Yeah, uh, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> because, I mean, Dr. Landers went there, but he's coming back with three more people. So that might mm -hmm. have something to do with it. I don't know. I have justify it. Whatever. Hey, no, uh, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> I still love it. So So now it's established that they're marooned there. And that's that's where this funny line comes in, where Peter Cushing says, uh, are, there, are there games to play here? Something like that. And she's, uh, he, I forget what game... But it's, oh, it's just solitaire. So, yeah, the, she, the setup is... I was is, thinking of another game, and he says, can three play? And he, they just walk away. He goes, oh, fascinating game, solitaire. Yeah, yeah, it's... <laughs> oh, man. It's very... It's delivered beautifully. I mean, that's the thing. Oh, the, the timing yeah. of it is delivered beautifully. So they go to examine the body. Here's one of the things about the movie, too. It takes its time. It really does. And once it kicks in later on in the film, it really kicks in. But they really, I mean, Terrence Fisher definitely takes his time in telling the story. And he, so we go through examinations and we have long, there are longer sequences of finding rooms and so forth like that. You know, he's not in any hurry to tell his story, mm -hmm. but it's actually building the tension. He's doing it right, in other words. Yes. 
they're examining the body. And one of the things that they find when Peter Cushing pulls the sheet down, and looks at it, he just she's so droll. He just goes, not a very pretty sight. <laughs> this face that's all mushy and gross and everything like that. <laughs> but they discover one of the things that they do discover when examining the body is that there are these tiny little punctures on the dermal layer, the skin, if you will. They're they're not sure what the connection is, but it, it, it the punctures would suggest that something was either taken out or put in, or vice versa. Right. At least they something to start with. They uh, oh yeah. And dur- by the way, during this, the lights flicker on and off. I think this is where they really establish that the generator. There's one generator on the entire island, and it controls all of the electricity on the entire island. And it's a kind of a throwaway line. But it's just, yeah, I've been after them to fix it for months. <laughs> so we know this is just the foreshadowing. We know yeah. that at some point, uh, that generator's got to go out, and it's you know it's going to go out. At the worst possible time in the movie, right? But that's what foreshadowing is for, Yep. right? Mm-hmm. They decide, let's well, let's go see Dr. Phillips because Dr. Phillips lives on the islands. He's a research scientist. He has a laboratory. He might be able to help with this unusual situation. Seems reasonable. Right? They go over to Phillips' uh, laboratory and they're knocking on the door and there's no answer, no answer. So Dr. Stanley breaks in through a window or something like that and he comes inside and there's another body lying there in the dining room. Same condition, no bones, all mushy. Stanley opens up the door and lets the other guys in. He says, you know, wow, this is another one. They they find the laboratory down in the basement along with a room, a lab that's filled with uh, radioactive isotopes. And so that's also something that they're foreshadowing ahead of time now, which is part of why this script works so well. The screenwriters knew what to do. They knew how to do it right. Yep. So you foreshadow this stuff without hitting people on the head with it so that later on it makes sense, reappears. In the lab, they, they find all the other scientists dead. Um, all of them are dead. All of them are boneless, boneless scientists. <laughs> <laughs> So they decide they're going to gather up all of Philip's notes and they're going to uh, take them back to the little inn that they're staying in. And they're going to start going through all the notes to see what's going on. Right before this, the constable goes to the Philip's house. The other guys have left. He's looking for them. He goes down in the basement and this tentacle comes down from the ceiling and grabs him around the neck. And we hear those horrible noises and him screaming. And that's really the first time we see them out by this thing slides over the car we only see the underside of it and tony's in the car and she sees it she screams they all come running over it it's nearby we can hear that awful noise but we can't see it but this is all brilliantly done you know showing the creatures not in their entirety but by little little bits here and there makes you wonder, like, what does the whole thing look like? Yeah. It keeps your imagination going, which is great. Terrence Fisher was a master filmmaker, and I I don't know if he gets talked about enough when people talk about the horror directors, you know, the greatest horror directors of all time or whatever, but Fisher, I think maybe one of the reasons why his movies are so successful for me is that he never approached them as, this is a horror picture, this is, he always approached them more as, like, this is a fairy tale for adults. Well, he's a t- he was a, a great storyteller. Yes, and that's really what it comes down to. It doesn't matter what the genre is. He knew how to tell a story. Yes, he did. 
And, you know, and some of the other movies that, that he did are also classics, mm-hmm. obviously. The first Hammer Frankenstein movie, the first Hammer Dracula movie. He did Curse of the Werewolf, uh, which is also brilliant. And he's just a director you could always count on, I think. Yeah. The, the guys that ran Hammer back in the day knew I mean, some of the other directors were good, but I think Fisher was the was the they really their go to guy for the really good projects. Yeah, I think so, too. So they figured they better go back to the mansion and see what else we can find. I don't remember why they go back, but this is the big scene in the film, really. Dr. Stanley, Peter Cushing, Dr. Landers and Dr. West, who's Edward Judd and Tony, Carol Gray. They all go back to the mansion. They go down into the laboratory. They see. The constable is dead. And then they hear the noise. And it's even worse down in there because the noise is sort of amplified because they're in this sort of cavernous uh, basement, right? And they finally get their first glimpse of what these things are. What you see first is you see this tentacle, the same tentacle that grabbed the constable, come through a doorway. And then the rest of it comes through and it's this large turtle shell-like creature it's basically uh, shaped like kind of like a, a star, like a five-pointed star, but it has this big lump, like a Galapagos turtle, if you will, that's all covered in these icky bumps and things. And the tentacle moves all around. And that's just it. It's this big lumpy thing with a tentacle coming out of it. And it starts moving toward them. And they're backed up because they don't know what to make of the thing, right? The doctor, Dr. Landers, picks up an axe I don't know why there's an axe on the wall, but... There are a couple of random axes in this film that just are just there. I guess if you're going to be living on an an isolated Irish island, it's good to have axes because you just never know. So he grabs an axe and he goes up to it and and he tries to hit it with the axe. But the thing is really solid. The axe does absolutely nothing. And in fact, what happens is because he's now close to it, the tentacle grabs him around the ankle. And then we start to hear that noise. And it's that... Oh, God, it's so... And he he falls right on top of the thing. And now, for the first time, we're actually seeing this creature who... What what it is doing is it's latched onto him. Through the skin, it's injecting this uh, liquid. That is what's liquefying the bones in the body and then it's sucking those bones out and he's screaming bloody horror and and he's writhing and he's twitching and it is really horrifying it's a great combination of all the different elements of the sound the visuals and the the monster itself uh the so so doctors west and stanley and and tony merrill watching horror basically as this man is essentially eaten alive from the inside out. And they're kind of trapped um, because now, you know, it's going to turn toward them by a stroke of luck. And another important plot point, the monster stops and it starts to divide much like a cell would. And a lot of people have made fun about this particular part of the scene for many years because what comes out of the creature as it splits in half definitely does look like chicken noodle soup. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, it's, you can't deny it. It's, it looks like chicken soup, right? Chicken noodle soup. Um, but what that does, though, it, it, uh, it stops the creature, which are called silicates. 
by the way. Mm-hmm. It's it's dormant because it's just split. And so it's their only chance now to get out of that basement. And Tony is terrified. She's she's so afraid. She does not want to go past it because what good reason. It, she just saw something absolutely horrible happen. Now there's two silicates and they're starting to wake up. Edward Judd, uh, Dr. West is like, I know we have to go. We have to go now and like pulls her and they run up the stairs and they run out to the car and uh, jump in. And there's there's more of them outside and they actually run one over as they're getting away and it does nothing to it. So now we know that these things are kind of indestructible. They're tough. They've been looking through all of Dr. Phillips' notes and so forth. And uh, they go to the mayor and they tell him what's going on and said, we're going to have to gather everybody at the town hall to let them know what's going on. So there's a big town hall meeting and and people in the town are skeptical and some of them are angry and just like, you know, what are they going to do about my cattle and, you know, and all this stuff. Um, but beautifully shot. And also that the town hall is sort of setting up, you know, foreshadowing what will inevitably, you know, be an Alamo-esque kind of, you know, big finish of the movie, a last act of the movie. Mm-hmm. But now we know what we're dealing with. And they're pretty scary. What they do is they send out a whole group of villagers and they're armed with guns and they have dynamite and so forth. And they, they go out to this field and now there's about I you know, like a dozen of them, of uh, the silicates that are now moving their way co- across the field. Well, they try to shoot them first. Right. And then mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't work. So then they go to the Molotov cocktails. Oh, yes. Molotov cocktails. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, at one point, um, Dr. Stanley, he's got a Geiger counter. Yeah. It's a quite actually a little unnerving scene also because he walks into amongst them and he's trying to get close enough to get a, be- a read on how radioactive they are. Because that's science stuff, you know. Sure. He almost gets attacked by one. Very close. They try blowing them up. That doesn't work. Uh, one guy moves in closer and he looks up and... Oh, man. One of them is in the tree, right? Oh. And it falls out of the tree right on top of the guy and sucks his bones out with much more screaming and horrible noises and so forth. That was awful. That was... So, oh, man. <laughs> it is. And that's the thing. The deaths in this film are horrifying. I've heard some people complain that the weak link in the movie is that the silicates themselves are not that impressive. You can't, I've looked, I can't see the wires, but they were obviously manipulated with wires and pulleys and on wheels or whatever. I really dig the design of them though. I think they look great, you know, for what they are. Yeah. Anything like that before, any any kind of creature like that before this movie, um, many of them since then. I mean, like The Crawling Eye is a movie from the late 50s that maybe early 60s that had something that unusual. But these things were really creepy. And the fact that we now know that they're going to divide every couple of hours means that the island is going to be overwhelmed with them in a certain amount of time. Luckily... They find one that's on the shoreline and it's dead. And so now they have one that they can study and they try to figure out what it is that had killed it. And uh, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to go back to the mansion. They're going to have to go back down into that basement and get uh, the isotopes uh, from the laboratory, which they established earlier were in that room. Right. And, and Cushing has such 
great line <laughs> when they're, they're talking about going back to that uh, mansion he says something like i'm I'm not terribly keen about going down to that basement again he <laughs> said at this point where edward judd says we don't want to take any chances and cushing says especially with me <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah um it's it's really funny is he's so funny he's so funny and it's just it's just wonderful to watch him Really, obviously, having a great deal of fun. Oh, you know, with they, this you know, he had a blast doing this. You can just tell. So, Doctor West and Doctor Stanley, they leave Tony back at the uh, the inn, and they they go down to the mansion. And there's this long sequence talking about before about Terrence Fisher really taking his time to set up the tension because we don't see any silicates. It doesn't mean that they're not there, right? Right. There's this whole sequence where they have to put on these hazmat suits to enter into the uh, isotope room and then very carefully extract the isotopes and put them in a special box and everything like that. So it's kind of a long sequence, isn't it? It is a long sequence. And I don't think there's even any music playing over it. It is just Mm -hmm. a very long kind of drawn out. It works. It's suspenseful. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. because you're just waiting for suddenly to one of those tentacles to come around the corner and grab them. So they go through this whole process they head out. Now, what they've come up with at this point is if they can inject all the cattle on the island and gather all the cattle together and inject them all with this strontium-90 isotope, if they can get the silicates to eat the cattle, then the silicates will all die from the strontium-90 that was inside the cattle. So it's a very good plan. Uh, okay (laughs) the the only thing they have to the only thing they have to count on is uh that the silicates uh, how many there's like a hundred of them now if they divide before they eat the cattle that's going to lessen the strength of the isotope of the radioactivity and and it might not work you know so the idea is to, to gather everybody in the island together at the town hall uh, have the cattle outside the town hall loaded up with the radiational um, serum. Radiational. I think that might be a new word. I would well, say that's, a, that, yeah. Well, it, yeah. It works for you? Yeah, it works for me. <laughs> works for you. Oh, real good. <laughs> Dr. West and Dr. Stanley are, are leaving the mansion, and Dr. Stanley goes out to the car ahead of Dr. West. He goes to the back of the car to put stuff in the trunk, puts the stuff in the trunk, closes the trunk and right at that moment, or right, right when it's actually when it's open, suddenly a tentacle and he pulls a fast one on us here, Terrence, he does, because you don't hear the, the weird noise before the other noise at this time. Right. It happens really fast, right? Tentacle comes up and grabs Dr. Stanley by the arm. Man. A silicate now has uh, Dr. Stanley by the wrist and it's starting to uh, inject it's whatever, it's venom or whatever you want to call it into there and, and eat his bones. He screams for Dr. West. Dr. West comes out and he's like, what do I do? Um, and he's got an axe. Luckily, there was an axe. And, <laughs> I, and and Dr. Stanley just basically puts his arm out because they know that the axe isn't going to work on the silicate. There's only one thing he can do. And it's such a great scene because Edward Judd is just going, but Brian, I can't, I can't do it. And, and Cushing is laying there and his eyes are bulging out. He's just like, you must, you must. And so Edward Judd cuts off his hand, 
cuts off uh, Dr. Stanley's hand with the axe. And there's this little spurt of blood. It's not a lot. It's just like a little spurt. But boy, oh boy, when I saw that in the movie theater when I was eight, (laughs) I freaked out. Because when you see things, especially at that age, they always seem much bigger and much more, I don't know, impressive than you realize later on. But I, it's still very effective to me. That was a moment that I did not see coming, took me I mean, by surprise. And I mean, it's Peter Cushing. You, yeah, doesn't exactly. happen to Peter Cushing. Come on, what are you doing? Yeah, no, they, that doesn't yeah. happen to wow. your heroes. Right. Yeah. You remember I mentioned early on when when I went to the movie theater that I wasn't really sure who Peter Cushing was. Mm-hmm. I knew the I, the name. Right. I assumed, especially because of this scene, that Peter Cushing was Edward Judd. Oh. Because I was like, that wouldn't happen to Peter Cushing, right? <laughs> I didn't know till the very end of the movie, the end credits or whatever, that 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 was actually Peter Cushing and the other guy was Edward Judd. Anyway. <laughs> They, he cuts his hand off and 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 saves his life. They obviously wrap up his the stump where his hand used to be, and they treat uh, Doctor Stanley's hand as best they can. And <laughs> they um, whatever you do for a hand that's cut off, and you know, and you don't have that the, the hand, so you're not going to be reattaching. Apparently, you need a lot of blood for that because it gives us an opportunity for another one of those lines from Cushing about how he's taken so many blood transfusions, he's almost full Irishman now. So <laughs> that's, right. that's, that's a brilliant line. Good screenwriting. I know. Really well. Yeah. Right. I'm, and I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't ad libbed. I'm assuming it was in the script. Oh, I'm, that's interesting, actually. I'm going to see if I can dig up the uh, uh, the shooting script to see. Mm. That'd be very, uh, very interesting to find out. Yeah. Maybe we'll do it as the script's gone wild. Hey, there you go. Uh, <laughs> and then they go out and they, they now have to inject all the cattle with that isotope. So they do that. And then it just it's kind of like they're all waiting now to see what happens. And the silicates begin to arrive. And wouldn't you know, <laughs> again, set up, right? You wouldn't you know, the silicates divide again, right before they reach the cattle. So now they just got to pray that the dosage that's in each of the cattle is enough to kill twice as many silicates now. Uh, And this is where it gets pretty scary at this point, because everybody is now essentially, I always call it the, the, the Alamo syndrome. Everybody's trapped in this one place and they're surrounded by the creatures. It's a waiting game now. I thought I'd use the sound of one of the silicates coming to get you or get me or get somebody to cut in here and say, Frank and I discussed the finale of the film, but even though we talk spoilers, I really wanted to leave this one out because there are some really cool things that happen at the end of the movie. If you haven't already seen the movie and we've piqued your interest, go check it out. It is so good. And the ending is Phenomenal. Apologies to Frank for cutting some of this out. I didn't think about it while we were actually recording, but, you know, I just don't want to spoil the ultimate ending. Besides, Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland, it kind of spoils the very last shot anyway, so you can get some of that there. But let's hear that silly kid again, and we'll wrap up with Frank. Oh, 
I'm kind of torn. I, on one hand, I would love there have to have been a sequel. Oh, okay. But at the same time, maybe it's better off as a standalone. You know, it's so beautifully done. I, I think it's it's a nearly a perfect sci-fi horror hybrid movie, at least for me. I have a lot of love for this film. Whenever I think about some of my favorite Peter Cushing films, this is right there at the top of the list. You know, in addition yeah. to his hammer work, obviously. But this is right up there for me. And I hadn't watched it in a couple of years before we started talking about doing this for the show. And I just found myself getting caught up in it again, caught up in the adventure of it, the horror of it, you know, really hoping that maybe this time Peter Cushing doesn't lose a hand, you know? I mean, just, I really got caught up in it, just watching it again, even though I'd watched it before so many times. So yeah, I would say it's nearly perfect for me. It's got a lot of really good stuff. It does have one of those moments. There's a bunch of movies like that where, there's a moment in the movie that I simultaneously look forward to and dread at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, like them, the, the moment in, in the movie, them, the giant ant movie where James Whitmore saves the two little kids that are down in the, in the sewer, but then he dies. He gets killed yeah. by the ant. And it's a heartbreaking moment in that movie, but it's that kind of scene for me. And the scene with, you know, with, with Peter Cushing, when he gets uh, attacked by the silicate and has his hand chopped off is that kind of scene, you know, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of moments in the movie that stick out in my memory so strongly. And every time I watch the movie, I like it more. I really do. It is a, probably a top 10 movie for me. Uh, if not to, top 20, at, at least. Wow. Um, I'm always happy to watch it. Yeah. And, and listeners, again, get it on Blu-ray. It looks great. It, it holds up really well uh, by putting it on this isolated island area. It makes it an, an easier sell to buy that. Yeah, everybody kind of dresses yeah. in these sweaters and they're kind of whatever. You know, it, it, it just works on so many levels. I'm really surprised that it's not more well known by people. Part of that is that Universal, once it acquired it, did very little to put it out there. You know what I mean? Like I said, they never it was never released on DVD and was no, almost never shown on television. Hmm. But I think that part of the reason it, it's always been sort of obscure is that it wasn't in the Hammer Library. It was barely in the Universal Library. There were so few uh, network television showings of it. It was really kind of hard to find. If there's any way that you can acquire the Blu-ray, I would highly recommend it. Uh, you know, Shout Factory has it out now, so um, yeah. at, at very least do that. And I'm pretty sure the Shout Factory release does have the scene of the hand being cut off because that's the scene that was edited out on um, many prints of the movie. Yeah, but, it's, um, it's a good one. It, it really is so, one of the I, best. Yeah, highly recommend it. Highly recommend it on my end. And and it is funny how some people have never even heard of it. And if you're, look, if you're a Peter Cushing fan, if this is not in your library, shame on you, I say. <laughs> I mean, it really is, I think, one of, one of uh, certainly one of my favorite of his performances of all time. He's fantastic in it. I, I'm a little spoiled when it comes to Cushing, or maybe spoiled is not quite the right word. Every time I see a Cushing movie now, I'm, I'm constantly looking for him to do something with his hands mm-hmm. just because that's what he did. Right. And, and sometimes that takes me out of the movie a little bit. I didn't do that once in this film. Well, well, because I'm just caught up in everything a, else. After a certain point, he only had one hand. So, <laughs> well, there is that too. <laughs> so there we are. Island of Terror, very high up on my list. Uh, love talking about it. 
happy to talk about it anytime anybody wants to talk. I, I think the movie, we've already kind of talked about it a lot, and uh, I could keep talking about it as well, uh, because I also <laughs> love it quite a bit. And Frank, if you haven't watched uh, The Island of the Burning Damned or Night of the Big Heap, I'd be real curious to hear your thoughts on it as maybe even a companion piece to Island of Terror, because I get the impression oh. they shot at the same place. Oh, you know what they did? They use a lot of the same locations. Um, Richard Gordon, also a producer on it. And actually, another quick little story. I uh, went to Monster Bash. In, um, I, it was somewhere around 2004. And Richard Gordon was a guest there. And I had never met him before, but in honor of him, I actually did a sketch of a silicate and I put it in a nice frame and I met him. He was a very lovely man, very sweet. And I presented it to him, actually presented it to him during a, a talk up on the stage. And the guy who ran, who still runs Monster Bash, invited me to come up and present him with it on stage. And another person who had created one of the brain creatures from The Fiend Without a Face, which was also a movie he had produced, presented him with that. And I, so I have this really wonderful photo of Richard Gordon holding The Fiend Without a Face brain in one hand and a drawing of a silicate in the other. And he was so lovely and it was so nice to meet him. And then several weeks later, I got a, a letter in the mail from Richard Gordon in New York. And it was just so sweet. It was a typed letter and he just wrote, he said... You know, it was it was so lovely to meet you at the Monster Bash. I don't think I expressed how much I enjoyed your beautiful drawing of the silicate. I will treasure it. Please, please, please. The next time that you're in uh, New York City, uh, give me a call and, and, and let's have lunch. Oh, wow. You know, and uh, oh, yeah, it was uh, lovely. I still have that letter, too. Unfortunately, I did not get back to New York um, before he passed away a few years later. Uh, but I still, again, that's another uh, treasure in my collection of memorable moments with meeting people who, who I uh, admired or uh, considered heroes. Well, Frank, I want to thank you for being part of the show again and, and making sure. time for us. <laughs> and once again, a week from the day this episode comes out, Scripps Gone Wild, Batman 66. And check it out and... I wish you the best of luck with the show, man. Thank you. Thank you. Great pleasure, Derek. I, I love being on the show. So anytime you'd uh, like me to come back, just let me know. Scriptsgonewild.com. There will be a link in the show notes, but if you are in the LA area next week, go for me. I, I can't go. So go for me so I can live vicariously through you and then call in or email me and let me know how it went. It looks like it's going to be a great time. If you want to keep up with Frank or learn about what he's up to, go check out his website at sketchythingsart.com. There are links to his documentaries, his books, his artwork. It's all good stuff. And like I said at the very beginning of the conversation I had with Frank, I love it when monster kids do good. Frank, you're doing good. Thanks for being part of the show, and thanks for your support over the years, man. Batman speaking. Warning all of you to brace yourselves for big news. The biggest. Tell them, Robin. Holy superlatives, Batman. It's really exciting. Soon, very soon, Batman and I will be batapulting right out of your TV sets and onto your theater screens. That's right, Robin. Our first full-length motion picture feature in color opens a whole new world of thrills. <laughs> Big screen.
uses more space on land, sea, and in the air. See, the new weapons in the bat arsenal combat the forces of evil. The Batcopter. The exploding, man-eating shark. Holy sardine! The relentless Megaton Magnet. The unholy Quartet Secret Submarine. Fire on! Fire on! You'll blast through the skies on these mad, manned missiles. And you'll be with me, Robin, at the Bat Scanner, eavesdropping on Batman's romance. And you'll shudder at the death-dealing Polaris missiles. Brace yourself, Robin. This could be the end. And that's just a sample of the exciting exploits ahead in our first feature motion picture. Holy memoranda, folks. Make a note not to miss it. A dark force awakens. Manos, God of primal darkness, as thou hast decreed, so have I done. The hands of fate have doomed this man. Thy will is done. And only one being in the world can stop it. Santa Claus Conquers Manos the Hands of Fate by Anthony Wendell. A comedy sequel for two of the worst movies ever made. Madam, it will be very dangerous to leave now. The master wants you. Fanta has a little girl to save. I'll try, dear lady. He'll have to face a dark force to rescue her. And he'll need some help from a robot. Cord! Come out of the spaceship! Santa Claus Conquers Manos the Hands of Fate by Anthony Wendell is available on Amazon. Check it out for yourself. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas, everybody! Three hours of fantastic fear. When you scream to these horrifying terror twins, the projected man and island of terror. There you face the projected man, born a man turned into a living laser beam by science's most gruesome experiment. Then, on the same theater program, you'll scream to the horror of Island of Terror. From another world comes the ghoulish, creeping death that lives by devouring living human bones. A new height in fright. See these horrifying terror twins. The projected man and island of terror. Both in blood panic color. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's movie, The Island of Terror, was featured in issue 42 from January of 1966. It is 12 pages long and loaded with photos set up in a cut-out collage layout. It begins with this information. You originally heard of this thriller in our pages as The Night of the Silicates, or The Night the Silicates Came. In England, its release title is Island of Terror. In the USA, it's The Creepers. Film monster fans from all over the world first saw it previewed at the fourth annual festival of fantastic films in Trieste last July. The main text is a complete synopsis. Let's hear how the first appearance of the monsters was described. 
As they attempt to leave, a fantastic slithering creature, emitting a weird sucking sound, appears, quickly followed by another, creatures more deadly and horrible than they had ever seen before. Lander seizes an axe and attacks one of the objects, but its tentacle whips out and grabs him. His petrifying screams echo as death comes slowly, the bone system being completely drained from his body. Brian, David, and Tony watch horrified and helpless. Then, to their further horror, the creature's bodies divide. Grasping this opportunity, they all run for their lives. The article spoils the entire movie, including the ending tag. In issue 94 from November of 1972, it is briefly mentioned in an article about surprise endings. The bone-devouring silicates of the Island of Terror were destroyed by radiation. Afterward, one of the heroes commented that it was fortunate that the creatures had been restricted to a small island. Otherwise, they could not have been destroyed. The scene then shifted to a scientific research center somewhere in Asia, and it was made clear that the silicates were on the loose again. It is also included in issue 99 in a compilation of article all about blobs, brains, and gooey monsters. Bone-eating silicates swarmed all over the isolated island of terror. These super-hard escapees from a silly putty factory were the result of an experiment that was conducted to cure cancer victims. Whether the land-roving, wall-scaling, tree-climbing blobs actually did destroy cancer grows was unimportant, since they left the patients empty of all calcium. In other words, dead as a sponge. Axes, bullets, fire, and dynamite failed to stop them. To make things worse, they were capable of dividing in two every few hours, a process which made the creatures look like matzo balls floating in chicken noodle soup. Inevitably, the monsters ate contaminated cattle bones and softened up permanently. Soon afterward, a laboratory in Asia created the same monstrosities, only this time they were unstoppable. So that's how Island of Terror was covered in FM. Before I go, I want to thank Tom from last week for his kind comments about the segments, and I want to invite him and you to share your famous monster memories. Send your stories of first issues, Captain Company craziness, Ackerman meanings, and other ways FM influence your life. I would love to share them with the Monster Kid Radio heads. Email, message, or voicemail Derek, and we will get your memories into a future episode. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. You heard Kenny earlier. He wants your famous Monsters of Filmland memories. Your memories of meeting Forrest J. Ackerman. How did famous monsters influence you to become a monster kid? You can send your memories in to monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 503-479-5657. It's 503-4795-MKR. And I'll forward those off to Kenny. If you have any feedback for the show in general, there you go. And I'll include you in a future episode of the podcast. This is, of course, available on our website at monsterkidradio.net, where you can find everything you need to know about the podcast between episodes, links to everything that we've talked about here on the show, Amazon affiliate links to the movies that we've talked about here on the show. So if you want to go and add these movies to your collection, you can do so. And if you follow the Amazon affiliate link, we get like a penny or two back. So you're helping to support the show that way. But the best way to support the show is to just share the show. Let people know about Monster Kid Radio. Get them the links. Share the posts on Facebook. Retweet the tweets. You know how social media works. The more Monster Kids, the merrier. There's also going to be a link to my eBay store in the show notes. And I mentioned that because 
Well, I'm just going to come to you and let you guys know what's going on. Here's the thing. My wife, Brenda, she's been on the show in the past. We talk about her quite a bit, and she loves you guys and gals, and she supports Monster Kid Radio. She's got some dental stuff coming up, and as of right now, since I'm still technically unemployed, we are surviving on just her health insurance through her job, and she has to have, as the dentist put it, a tooth elevated. She has to have a tooth pulled, and it's going to cost a lot more than we were expecting. So over the next couple of days, I'm going to be refilling my eBay store. I think right now all that's there is the collector's coin that the Bank of Ireland put out a couple of years ago celebrating Dracula and Bram Stoker. So you can still bid on that, and I do have more than one of those. So if this one goes, I'll put another one up. I'll also be putting more Monster Kid material up, some books, some posters, press material. Basically, I want to make sure that this stuff goes to a good home while I'm helping to fix my wife's mouth. Can you tell she's actually at work right now and not in the other room hearing me talk about fixing her mouth? Don't anyway. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well. Thank you for everybody who's been supporting me through eBay or Patreon or our coffee channel at ko-fi.com slash monsterkidradio. Just I really appreciate everybody's support. You guys and gals are amazing. What's coming up next week? Well, as of right now, I have a recording scheduled to happen later tonight with Charles Babbage. Charles Babbage has been on the show in the past. He's a maker. He's a creative. He is a props designer, a puppet person. I don't know what you actually call him, what his official job title is, but he's a huge fan of the movie The Time Machine from 1960. So... That's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to close out Flashback February with a look at the film The Time Machine. It's another good one, and I'm sure it'll be another good time. So come back for that. Make sure you check out the band Los Cosmos over at loscosmos.bandcamp.com. Again, they gave us permission to play their music here on the show, and you can pick up their entire digital album for $7, and that's 14 tracks. And doing the math, and you know, I don't like doing math, but doing the math, it's two bucks a song. You can't go wrong, and I'll make sure there's a link to their website in the show notes. Finally, I want to give everybody a heads up in the Portland, Oregon area. If you are here on Tuesday, February 25th, the Hollywood theater is showing a 35 millimeter print of King Kong versus Godzilla hosted by Kyle Yount, formerly of the Kaiju cast and currently of the collect all monsters YouTube series. This movie is special to me on so many levels. I don't know if I'm going to be able to go just just timing and money wise and all that. But if you're in the area, go check it out. You'll be hard pressed to have a better time than watching a classic kaiju film at the Hollywood theater. Of course, if you go, drop me a line. Let me know how it went. Until next week, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Psycho Surf. That belongs to Los Cosmos. And you'll hear that song again here in a second. My name is Sarah Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 